I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. That's Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat in of any eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for the for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be des desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and, and eat and live forever, 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. He was taken. He drove out the man, and at the Easter garden of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Let's give Diana a hand. That's, that was a lot of verses to read, so gives us good context for what we're going to be in this morning. Uh, and for those of you that were expecting Elmer and you're like, what's going on? Um, sorry, those of you that, uh, that stayed away, I won't tell Elmer. He's, he'll be here next week. And um, yeah, for those of you that weren't expecting me, well, surprise, you got me. Uh, we made a slight change. And, uh, and just thinking about it this week, felt like going on and, and talking again about sin this week and um, kind of connecting it to last week where we were was, was maybe beneficial for us. So um, I feel like there's something else I wanted to say. Oh, and I, Steph, I'm sorry for, uh, for messing that up with uh, the video. And uh, how many of you have been enjoying the graphics and the weekly emails that we've been sending out and all that sort of stuff? That, that's a lot of Shana. She's doing a lot uh, this summer, and so we're just we're really thankful for her and the work that she's doing behind the scenes. So um, it's great stuff. So we're in this series titled Presence, Formation, Witness. How We're talking about how we're made for God's presence, the pursuit of his presence, how we're shaped by formation in our lives, and how we as the people of God are defined by witness, living to love God and others living and proclaiming the way of Jesus in our lives. And so last week and this week, we're going to talk about sin in relation to formation. I know, we're going to talk about sin. Um, and, and kids, I want to say this, kids, can I have your attention, those of you that are here, when I, I, you might hear like formation, and I would expect that it might go right over your head. Like, what, what are you talking about when you say the word formation? And just when you hear the word formation in church in these days, think like this. All we're talking about is being like Jesus. So when you hear formation, think, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, be like Jesus. Adults, some of you are like, I didn't know what formation meant. Be like Jesus, okay? We're going to be, we want to be like Jesus. Formation is about what we are becoming, what we focus on, what we obsess about, what we watch, what we listen to, what we dwell on. Please hear this. Everything in your life, everything is forming you into something. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you think. Everything in your life is forming you to be something. Either to be the people of God, being formed into the image of Jesus, being like Jesus, concerned and preoccupied, I'm using that word specifically, with building the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God, or you are being formed into something else. We want to be formed into the people of God. And sin, the reason we're going to talk about sin is because sin will form us. Sin shapes us. It, it actually deforms us, if you will. And 1 Peter 5, there's this verse there where it talks about, Peter says, Satan, right now, he's talking about now, present age, he is prowling around like a lion, he says, 
He uses this metaphor. And it says he's seeking someone. He's seeking people to devour. Peter's writing this to the church. And he's saying, watch out. He's saying, be aware of the presence and the inclination to sin in your life and resist him. Resist the devil. So, and, and I, I said this sort of last week, but again, there is topics in the church that I relish to preach on. Like there's, there's a list. I've probably, if I thought of, I've got a top three of things that I love to preach on. And if I could preach on those three things, I'd do it all the time. But there's a responsibility actually on me as an elder that we talk about things and we preach things that are going to form us into the people of God. Sin is one of those things. I don't, I don't necessarily relish preaching on this, but I'm going to be held accountable before God of how I led and what I taught. And so I recognize that that's important. And, and for us who are leading the church, that's important for us to be aware of. So we don't just want to avoid truth because it's difficult. We want to we face it. So this morning, we're going to talk about the nature of sin and the gift of formation. Blaise Pascal said this. He said, nothing offends us more rudely than the doctrine of original sin, and yet without it, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. We can't know ourselves without understanding this, without talking about sin. Because there's two things that as people, all of us feel. We know and we feel that we are beautiful and we're noble, that we were made for something more. We also feel that we are bro broken and fractured as, as people. And we feel those things in us. And while largely culture and the church doesn't want to talk about sin anymore, we all, every single one of us, we run into the reality of good and evil, right and wrong. And we have to know what to do with that in our lives. Richard Rauter, he's a secular sociologist. He said this, and I find this fascinating. He said, the only redemption people like me can offer is a man-made social utopia where social conditions are such that there is more kindness than malice. That is the only hope of a secular, humanistic, hedonistic society. That they offer us a man-made social utopia that they set conditions in place that somehow is going to lead us to have more kindness than malice. I want to ask you, how are we doing with that right now? How's it going? Not great. That's an understatement. Now, what we read, though, here in Genesis, and I should open up my Bible to Genesis. <laughs> what we just read, what Diane read, okay, do we expect people to believe a story that's talking about, has talking animals and magic fruit in it? You're, you're telling me that this story that we just read somehow is going to explain all of this. Like, like how, how can we, people are going to ask, they're going to hear, so how can you seriously, like, take this, like, as reality? Like, a talking snake? Like, how do, how do we understand Genesis 3? 
And, and there's lots to understand here, and a lot that we're actually not going to get into because we don't have time. And we don't have time to get into the ancient Near Eastern myths about creation and how actually, when you look at it, this story is actually subverting and it's undermining the worldview of the time. We're not going to get into that. But this, this was a radical way of looking at the world even when this was written. But I want to suggest this morning that we sort of touched on this already previously, but that this story has unbelievable power for what you feel in your life. That what we read here really does under, make, help us to understand what we are feeling in our life. So I want to talk about this morning four features of the nature of sin, and then I want to talk about how God responds to this, that how we see how he responds in this text. So number one, the first feature, the nature of sin, it shifts the image of God. Verse one says there, the Lord God, the word there in the Hebrew is Jehovah, meaning talking about a personal God, the Lord God, Jehovah, that's the personal name for God. There's a subtle shift here in the text, and, and there's lots of them in the text, and what they do, these subtle shifts, is they reveal big insights into what the nature of sin is. Because Satan changes the name for God here. You don't catch it unless you're looking at the Hebrew. And Eve follows him. They shift the name of God to Elohim, which is just the generic term for God. They move it from Jehovah to Elohim. And what Satan is doing very, very intentionally is shifting from a covenantal God, a personal God, to a God of rules and regulations. Did God actually say he begins? We all know in life, little questions, little doubts, combined with the right situations, can lead to all sorts of manner of doubt in us where we begin to question things. Questions that sow doubt. That is Satan's strategy here. Did God really say? And Eve takes the bait. This is what it says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We didn't read this, but this is what God had said to them. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I want to notice then in the text in Genesis 3 how Eve's response to Satan omits three things. Sorry, no, there's three things. Number one, it omits freely. That God said you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Eve doesn't mention that. Second thing is she adds the phrase, nor shall you touch. We don't read that God said that. Three she fails to say to Satan that God commanded this. This is Satan's goal for us. Get you to focus on one thing. What, did, what was he doing with Eve? God's holding out on you. That's what he's doing. You can't trust God. Did God actually say? This is his strategy today. It's, it hasn't changed when it comes to God's word. His strategy is get you to take away from it, get you to modify it, get you to reframe it to what suits you. 
We're seeing this all over the place now in the church. Take away, modify, reframe it for what suits what we want. Notice that Eve never mentioned how much God had given them. Like, why isn't Eve talking about that? Now, if you've got kids around the teenage years, you will notice this just happened yesterday to me. You will realize how dramatic and they overemphasize stuff. So, like, you'll say to your, your almost teenager or teenager, you'll say, put that down. And then you'll hear them later saying, Dad said that I'm never, ever allowed to touch that. Or, you know, like, please don't play that song right now. And you'll hear, how come you never let me listen to music? I didn't say that. Blown way out of proportion. I was thinking about this the other day, and I was like, man, I bet you, like, I was remembering things in my life, and I'm like, I bet you I did this all the time to my parents. Probably drove them bonkers. But sin seeks to change the image of God, ultimately elevating oneself in place of God, making self, ourselves, the ultimate point of existence. To be self-centered right now is a 21st century virtue. Like, it is celebrated. Celebrate that the world revolves around you. No, seriously. Like, just celebrate that the world revolves around you. You can do whatever you want. You, like, the social conditions right now to make the world revolve around you, it's amazing. Except that it wasn't God's plan. And this leads us to number two, the nature of sin. Sin lies about the nature of autonomy and human flourishing. This is so key because the world is trying to preach us a message that's a lie. Verse 4 and 5. This is the deception. He's, he's saying, Satan's saying to Eve, you sure you can't go the other way? You sure? You will not surely die. God knows that he's actually lying to you. You'll actually see reality, he's saying. You will be like God. You will not surely die, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The problem is, it was a lie. One of the words for sin, that there, and there's, a, there's a many, many, many words for sin in the Bible. I mentioned that last week. But one of the words is afenteo. That's, it means, it's speaking to defiance, being over someone. Interestingly, that's where we get our word authenticity from. I must be me. That's a real challenge for us. Because we feel like we have to be authentic and it's got to be all about me. Our culture, interestingly, is all about freedom from something, but never to something. This is, it's like it is embedded in the culture that we must be free from things and in our lives. See, the thing is, uh, the reason we say this is when you think about Adam and Eve and what's going on here, there was tons of freedom with God. Adam and Eve had tons and tons and tons of freedom given to them by the Lord. The Lord says, you've got it all. You've got this whole garden. Everything is yours but the one thing. 
1992, there was a Supreme Court decision, and this is what Justice Anthony Kennedy said. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Whoa. That's a major, major shift that happened in a landmark ruling in 1992. And if you don't think that didn't change the way that culture shifted, that's massive. You see all of that in entertainment, in media. There's a massive, massive push in that. Huge implications. And what's at the center of that statement from the Supreme Court is, and I, you know, I say, well, we're in Canada. Yes, but we are so influenced by entertainment and media out of the Western culture. This is permeated culture. And what that statement says is, it's all about me. All of it. This is, and this is the irony within politics right now. As we see politics say, taking this really, really dangerous place in society right now. Is that, that, it's all about me, is what feeds both the alt-right and the left. They're both coming from the same place. Just different ideologies. The belief that there is a concept of design that we must conform to. Think about this. The idea that we are to conform to a specific design. That appears absurd and offensive in our culture. Like there's, the, our culture, no, no, there's no one way that it's supposed to be. You're telling me there's one, one way that it's all supposed to be? Th there is no concept for sin in that view of that, that, that you could, whatever suits your fancy. We are our own centers. We are our own lawgivers. So we reject dependence on a superior being. Like you're telling me that I should worship a superior being? That's distasteful to most people now. You're telling me that I should submit my life and I should worship someone better than me. That I should study their will. That I should bend my life to it. That, that really, that doesn't play well. That we should confess our failures, assign our lives to this, to God. Society goes, that's absurd. This is the deception of sin. God is an illusion. Or God is holding you back. Flourishing is found where you are at the center of all things. Augustine said this, For wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, it is fixed in sorrows, even if it is fixed on beautiful things. I think that encapsulates so much of the broken state of our culture right now. We are fixated on beautiful things, yes. They will never, ever, ever give you the fulfillment that you need. They will leave you completely unsatisfied. And they'll leave us in sorrow. And here's the reality. That temptation to live like that exists in all of us. Number three, the nature of sin begins in rebellion. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and in that it was a delight to the eyes... 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Another word for sin is the word pasho, which means rebellion or offense. It has the meaning actually of a deliberate breach, like a clenched fist of rebellion. I'm going my own way, God. Sin begins, it began here with Adam and Eve with a deliberate act of rebellion. Do you see what happens after we take the bait of Satan? See what, see what happens? We begin to doubt the goodness of God. We begin to doubt how we flourish. The very thing that God said is off limits is now reframed. You see how it's reframed here? It's good for food. It's now seen as delightful to our eyes. It stirs unhealthy desire in us. God said, don't touch it. The reality is, we reframe it, but it's actually rebellion. And, the, okay, here's the interesting thing. Genesis 2, when God tells them, clearly, he spoke it to Adam. Where's Adam in all this? Where's Adam in all this is happening? Eve's like, oh, yeah, and Adam's like, hmm, here, have some. Yeah, yeah. Where in the world is Adam? He's right there. He's passive. He's silent. He's standing there. Hmm. Hmm. Like, it's passive rebellion on the part of Adam. He's, there's a failure to act on Adam's part. He doesn't say to the, he's standing right there. Why didn't he say to the serpent, uh, no, I'm good, saying to Eve, no, I'm good. Why doesn't he mention to the serpent, um, do you know who I am? I'm an image bearer with dominion. Get out of my garden. Doesn't say it. Sin is primarily rooted in rebellion against a loving God. That's what we need to see here. God is not holding them back. God is not trying to restrict. God had given them so much. He is a loving God. Sin is rebellion. That, and there's a significant ideological shift in this regard that's happened where we think of sin as something that we do against one another when primarily sin is rooted in rebellion against God. All sin starts with rebellion against God and his ways. It's, it's so interesting. Did you catch that when Diane was reading? Afterwards, when God comes and he, and he confronts with Adam and Eve what's happened, what does Adam first do? Oh, it's the woman that you gave me. Her. That's, it's her fault. Look at, you gave her to me. Why should I be held responsible? And what does God say to him in verse 17? God says, your sin, Adam, wake up. Your sin was against me. Now, we have to be careful because we, we can hear all of this and we can look at this account and we can read this and think about it and just assign it to the world out there. This is the, the, the world's problem. But this problem that we're talking about about sin has gone viral in the church. 
There's a Christian author that uh, just in the last week, she announced on an Instagram post that her and her husband, they, after a year of counseling, uh, they are separating and they're getting a divorce because uh, he's gay. And so they're, they're followers of Jesus, but they're, they're separating, their marriage is ending, and it's being framed as, this is a good thing. This, he's coming into who he is. He's embracing who he is. Our kids are going to understand. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing for our kids to walk through. We're going to remain best friends. This is God's plan. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, how in the world has the church gotten to this point? The church. The, the, we celebrate this. And then it begs the question in me, Paul, what sin are you comfortable keeping in your life and celebrating? Because the starting point of all rebellion is, did God really say? Did God really mean that? We doubt who God is. We doubt what he said. It's an issue because we don't think that we can trust God. That's one of the, that's the root of the issue. We don't think we can trust him. We believe now that we can sin without consequence. I mean, the church is rife with self-preservation. Aligning ourselves with culture, which says, I just got to take care of myself. I'm sorry. Sorry about you. I'm sorry. I just, I got to take care of myself. It's about me. That is in the church. This was Satan's strategy with Adam and Eve. Separate them from God, make it all about themselves, what they desire, and guess what happens? They turn inward because of fear. They worry only about themselves and their preservation. Is that not modern life right now? Jeff Cook says this, when I make myself primary, my life, my well-being, my success, it is a further step away from reality. Those who are hell-bound do not travel downward, but travel inward into vanity, personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrated soul. I, I was really gripped when I heard that quote. Sort of goes along with C.S. Lewis's allegory, uh, his story, The Great Divorce, about um, paints a picture of those in hell consumed with themselves. Number four, the nature of sin. It's rooted in shame. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Ellen Mann, he wrote a book, Atonement for a Sinless Society, and he said, for a culture that doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in sin, doesn't believe in their need for salvation, doesn't believe in their need for Jesus, and there's a large segment of society that's there now, he said it's very difficult to talk to them about their need for Jesus. They, they don't actually get it. And he says in his book, he says, the key is to talk about shame. 
because it's not, shame is not something that we've done wrong. Shame says something is wrong with me. Sin changes us. And we think there's something wrong with us. And we all feel this. The world is chasing after identity and worth. The world is telling people all over, you're worthy, you're unique, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're incredible. Right? People were, we, that's why we love social media. We just, we want to hear that over and over again. Why? Because it gives, gives you actually physically shots of dopamine in your brain. It's making you actually feel good. Dopamine, just boom, shots of dopamine. I want to I feel good. And yet, when you deal with people, you see they're left with painful, painful feelings because in our hearts we've said we are our own God. I dictate good and evil and I will find flourishing apart from God. And what that does is it leaves us with shame and fear. And shame distances us from others. We're separated from God and we create cover stories for ourselves. That's, that's what the sowing of fig leaves is. Modern day fig leaves, we, we create for ourselves images and identities. I did this in college. When I was in, after high school, I did this. I created, because of a broken, dysfunctional home that I wanted to disassociate myself with, I crafted this image, this facade. I didn't even realize at the time, I don't think, how much I was doing it. But I was cloaking myself in an image that I wanted to appear as something else. And it worked for a time. Here's the thing, it didn't really actually ultimately work. And people see through it. They see through the facade. And you know what was underlying in me? What was driving me in that? Was shame. Shame of where I had come from. Shame of what I had experienced. Shame of not wanting other people to know. And so I will craft an image that will make people think that I'm something else. And worse than all of this, we cannot save ourselves. No course or program or anything, self-medicating will not work. Using religion, doing good in God's name, external measurements that make us feel better than others, make us feel special because we're doing something, that will not work. The, the deception of self-autonomy it leads to misery. And you know what the truth is? Is when you begin to talk to people, so many people are miserable underneath. Underneath everything that's going on, they are miserable. And, what, and if they're not miserable, they're self-medicating to try and not be miserable. Do you know during COVID, what they're seeing a huge spike in right now in, in profits and in what people are buying? booze, tons and tons and tons of alcohol. We've rebelled. We have guilt and shame in our souls. We're cut off from the life of God. We can't change or save ourselves. And here's the question that we are left with, all of us. What do we do? This is why Jesus is such good news. And that's an understatement. He is amazing, amazing great news. 
I want to talk here and is God's response to sin. Because immediately as Adam and Eve enter into this rebellion, God moves swiftly into saving action. Verse 8 and 9. God, it says, God pursues them. The goodness is running after me. Running after me. God is in pursuit of Adam and Eve. He's saying he's searching for them. He, he knew where they were. He's drawing them out saying, where are you? Where are you? What's happened? Verse 21, God covers them. He made garments for them. Verse 15, God gives them a promise there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pretty much every theologian one way or the other believes that that verse is pointing to Jesus' victory over sin and over Satan on the cross. God knew what he was going to do. This is why Jesus, no matter any generation, any time, any country, Jesus resonates in all of it and through all of it. Jesus has always resonated and will always, always resonate. Because he's what we need. Because in our hearts we feel lost, we feel shame, we feel guilt, we feel separated and unable to change ourselves. We feel it. And Jesus comes and he undoes all the brokenness in our lives. And Jesus tells us the truth in a culture of lies. No one said we'd like it, but it's true. He says, you don't, Jesus said, you don't need to focus on self. Actually, you need to self-deny. That's what you need to do. You need to come after me. Take up your cross. Follow me. Die to self. He, says to the, he said, let the bur dead bury their dead. Well, what are you saying, Jesus? What do you mean? I shouldn't care. No, no. Your focus on me, you prioritize your life around me. He's saying. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus never said that truth is fair, but Jesus said the truth will set you free. You know, sin is serious. And that's, that's why we've been looking at it here these couple weeks, because the Bible doesn't shrink back from sin. But in Jesus, and this is the beautiful news that we need to hear, we have power over sin. The New in the New Testament, there's an intentional focus on Jesus as the second Adam. That something has shifted because he came to undo all of the brokenness caused by sin. When you look at scripture and the whole of it and the big picture of it, there's two gardens. There's two trees and there's two decisions. And Jesus triumphs over the power of sin and death. And he does it by obedience. And the glorious news of the gospel, the glorious truth is that we are the recipients. We're invited into a new humanity. We are invited to receive union with Christ. No longer are we tied to Adam. No more are we tied to sin and destruction. We're not tied to it anymore. And when we read the, the account of the resurrection in the New Testament, what we need to hear 
and the crucifixion for that matter too, that it was for me. You need to read it that it was for you. For you personally. This is the shift that takes place when we do that. This is the shift when the story of Jesus, and this was true for my life, when the story of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel connects with your story. When your story and what you've walked is connected with Jesus and you see that he, he meets you in all of your shame, meets you in all of your brokenness, all the dysfunction, all the guilt, all the stuff, all of it. He meets you in it and he heals you in it. That is the power of the gospel. It's a major change. And when we see that, what we see is the good news is for me. So this is where the pursuit of intentional formation in the ways of Jesus, it is such a gift. Practices, decisions, choices, disciplines, lifestyles that welcome, encourage, and make room for the life of God in our lives to make us more like Jesus. That's the gift of formation. Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, Jesus welcomes us into this restoration of relationship. It's not simply about salvation. The aim of salvation is the restoration of relationship. And so, okay, bringing it down, this is real life, right? Talking about, you know, theological stuff and this sounds good, Jesus' death, resurrection. Let's, let's bring formation down to reality, to real life. Numerous, we have numerous examples through the months of COVID and kids at home where we are battling, Jess and I, having to say no to certain media, to certain entertainment, to certain practices that we do not feel will encourage formation to the ways of Jesus in our kids and in their hearts. And it gets really practical and it gets to be really not always fun because our kids are like, why can't I do this? real life really practical and this this is where it applies for us as adults really practical and mundane decisions that we have to consider and discuss and think about in our lives in relation to formation what am i becoming through this through what i'm doing through what i'm listening to through what i'm watching through all the things what i'm doing in my life what am i becoming So I want to end by allowing you, inviting you to engage this week in this, to, to help you examine where sin manifests itself in your life. And I've got four questions for us to, to go away. You might want to take a picture of this because they're a little bit involved. Um, if you want, I can always email them to you after too, but four questions. First, in what areas of my life do I struggle with doubt? or questioning the goodness of God? Number two, where am I prone to operate in rebellion or defiance in my life? Where do I just want my own way? Number three, where is shame present in my life? Where is Jesus asking to come into my life to heal this? 
And I have a fourth question, which is specifically for men. Men, where do you struggle with passivity in your walk with God? And where is God calling you to lead? Because we all struggle and deal with what Adam was fostering there in the garden. Now, those questions, getting, getting to the root of stuff in our life, getting to the place where we can hear God specifically in this kind of stuff, I'm not going to, to try and fool you. This is going to take time. You, you have to make room for this. You've got to make room for silence and solitude to get alone with God, to slow down, to hear, to listen, to be silent, to engage your heart, inviting Jesus to be with you. And that's inviting Jesus to be with you. Actually inviting him, saying, Jesus, please come and be with me right now because the stuff I'm about to engage with in my heart is going to be hard. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like what I feel. I'm not necessarily going to like what comes up, and I really need you to be here with me. Jesus loves to meet us in that place. And you're listening and examining my heart. What's gone on in the past? Where am I presently at? What are the things I'm presently struggling with? What are the things in my past that I've never actually dealt with that Jesus is inviting me to deal with. All right. Come on, Rebecca. Father, I want to thank you that when Adam and Eve sinned, that you did not just say, I'm done with them. This is over. I can't believe they did this. I'm just going to start fresh. That wasn't your heart. Your heart was displayed in that moment that you pursued them, that you loved them, that you cared for them, that you were grieved by what had happened. You were grieved by the shift that had happened, and yet you cared for them, and you left them with a promise. And I am so thankful, God, that in our state of brokenness, in our state of dealing with the effects and the impact of sin in our lives. God, even stuff that we had no control over, stuff that happened to us that have, has affected us to this day. You are so faithful in running after us with your goodness. You're so faithful in pursuing us. You're so faithful in inviting us into places of healing and transformation and into the way of formation in the way of your son. God, we're thankful that you promise that you will conform us to the image of your son. And we want to say yes, 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 yes to that invitation. Father God, you are so good. You're so faithful. You are a loving, faithful father. And we receive your goodness today. In Jesus' name.